This is Car Expert. For me, it's a subtle update, but it's a reminder that a lot of people forget the Kodiak when they're out shopping for a seven-seat SUV, but man, they really shouldn't. Tesla is on a real winner at the moment. Opening a factory in this day and age to produce more vehicles is kind of unheard of. From eight to 9,000, and all the Porsche engineers actually said, it sounds like you're hurting the car, an incredibly harsh motorsports kind of noise. But they all sort of laughed and said, it can do it, just enjoy it. Hello, my name's Mandy Turner. Paul Marrick, long time no talk. <laughs> it has been, Mandy. How are you? Very good. And hello, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy. I know this is an audio podcast and a family podcast, but can we comment on what Paul's wearing? <laughs> or not wearing? <laughs> I'm not wearing a shirt for those wondering what's going on. You have like a singlet on. We actually, I think, Scully, you called him Vin Diesel before, didn't you? He does look a little bit Vin Diesel. Paul and yeah. I are both, not from the same incident, but we're both at home isolating with COVID at the moment. And Paul turned on his camera and he's just... He's wearing his truck driver singlet. <laughs> um, we've got a new feature at uh, Car Expert, Paul, the Car yes. Finder Guide. I noticed this right up the top of the page last night. What is this all about? Yeah, look, um, we actually published a story today on the site and I put something up on social as well. Uh, and we, we would love you to try and break the tool and to give us feedback on it. Um, now, when you go to the site, it's in the top right-hand corner. It will be called Car Finder Guide for some people. It will be called a discovery tool for some people. We're split testing I think six or eight different names of that tool. So you will see different names for that tool depending on uh, your session and where you are and all that sort of stuff. So uh, click on that and then um, have a little play with it because we're keen to get an understanding of whether it works or not, whether there's any changes that need to be made to it. We've already picked up some stuff from uh, some of our users that have been playing with it uh, that we've now fixed, which is great. So yeah, if you do have any feedback, there's a story on the site or you can reach out to one of us on social media or send us an email with your feedback. We would really, really appreciate uh, hearing it. The tool effectively allows you to if you don't know what you're looking for, find a car. So I actually had a friend of mine just by chance today say, hey, I'm looking for a hybrid. I don't want to spend more than 50 grand. What should I get? And I was like, oh, let me use our car finder tool. Um, so I went there and, and basically narrowed down two choices for it, which was which were a CX-30 and a RAV4 hybrid. So um, I think that it's cool that, that the tool works functionally. And um, yeah, we just need as much feedback as we can get. So if you do have any, please get in touch with us. Fantastic. Um, now, Scully, let's have an argument. Sure. The BMW M240i, uh, what do you think of its design? Well, I think the first thing is if I ever have a talkback radio show, I'd love for it to be called Let's Have an Argument. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, M240i, before I was confined to my apartment, I was driving it and having seen the car in pictures and then in some videos online in different colours, I wasn't sure whether I liked it or not. The one that we had was in like a primer sort of grey with black detailing and it kind of didn't do a heap for me. Um, Mike Costello really loves it. I saw another one in purple that I actually really like. definitely the look means of. it's not good looking. I'm just curious <laughs> to know what you guys think. I think I know where Paul stands based on that. I don't mind the look of it. I just think that colour did it absolutely no favours. I just thought it looked weird, like a Chinese knockoff of a two series. It's definitely, it's got some real like muscle car proportions to it. You look mm. at it some angles and it looks square and boxy and short and awesome. But I think I agree with you. I saw one in like a black sort of dark purple and it looks really tidy. And then you see this one and it looks like the taillights have been glued on at the end mm. because there are different colors to the rest of the car. Mm. Um, I'm curious to know what people think. So let us know on podcast at carexpert.com.au or in the comments, which you already do, um, because I can't make up my mind on it. Mandy, Boy. you sit. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at photos of it now and uh, I need to, I'm the same with you, Scully. <laughs> I'm 50-50. Like there's, there's, there's some angles where I quite like it. Uh, but, yeah, those taillights. Yeah. Well, we we have just well. seen spy pictures of the M2 and that looks very, very muscular in comparison. So maybe yeah. that's what it needs. It just needs M2 treatment. Maybe. Anyway, what we've just done is spend two minutes – dedicated something entirely visual on the podcast. Um, <laughs> and I was expecting yelling. That wasn't really an argument, damn it. <laughs> it's more a 774 callback segment than it is like a 3AW or an SEN post-loss thing. Yes, I think so too. Uh, okay, let's do some news. And 
David, we'll start with you, Paul. The 2022 Ford Ranger has been detailed, so give us all the deets for us. Yes. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the world's slowest egg timer, but that is what Ford is doing at the moment. They are drip feeding this for all that it is possibly worth. Uh, we finally have some fresh information on the Ranger. They've been holding back on things like payloads, capacities, and engine outputs. Uh, But we do know now that the V6 diesel is going to pump out 600 newton metres of torque, which is pretty impressive, 184 kilowatts of power. It's almost identical to what we saw in the F-150, so... um, you know, which is where this engine came from. So it was not a great deal of surprise that it kind of matches that exact output. Uh, we've also seen that the two-liter diesel, which is currently fitted to uh, the Ranger, will stay the same effectively and produce 500 newton meters of torque. Uh, they will also have uh, a two-liter four-cylinder diesel that pumps out 405 newton meters of torque. So um, it is interesting. I, I did notice the. Um, uh, the two liter diesel is down three kilowatts, but the oh. output is the same. And I don't really understand why. Scott, do you know why they've done that? I cannot explain that to you. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if maybe it's to do with the exhaust routing. Uh, I know we'll get to the Porsche thing later routing. on, but they were explaining to us how back pressure in an exhaust system can cost you power. And maybe there's something to do with that, with the new design of the tailgate in the Ranger and the way that it's all packaged underneath. Um, or maybe someone at Ford was just feeling mean and subtracted three from the number. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> um, the other thing is we, we already know the power and torque output of the Raptor. That was 292 and 583, so that's a really healthy number from the petrol twin-turbocharged V6. And it looks like most of the range is going to be fitted with a 10-speed automatic uh, transmission. And then in addition to that, depending on which variant you go for, they will have a mix of full-time four-wheel drive and then uh, sort of part-time four-wheel drive similar to the current arrangement. And it looks like that's a, it's kind of similar to the way that it is now with the four cylinders, but the six cylinder will have that full-time four-wheel drive system along with the Raptor as well. Um, They've then gone over a bunch of specs in terms of payload. So, I won't go into too much detail because there is literally like 20 lines of payload and, and um, GCMs and GVMs, but it does show that that they, there is an impressive payload number at the lower end of the range of 1,300 kilos. So, that is a decent chunk that you'll be able to, to actually sort of put in the tray. I think Raptor's also up a touch as well. From memory, Raptor was around the 600 kilo mark with the previous gen. The new one is over 750. So, um, Still not a huge amount, but it kind of bridges the gap between Raptor and things like Wildtrak, which are around that sort of 900 mark. Paul, Ford has also released like a spec breakdown for the new range. We're expecting this Ranger to be better, but also more expensive than the one that came before. Do you think that the list of standard equipment that you get, even on the base model, is going to be enough to justify that increase? Yeah, look, I think they're going to be putting a lot of that increase on things like the interior and the big screen and all that kind of thing. So, even the base XL variant comes with a 10-inch um, Sync 4 uh, portrait screen. So, that is that is a big standard inclusion in a car that is, you know, it was currently fitted with the world's smallest screen. Um, so, it really is a big step forward. It'll have an embedded modem for the Ford Pass Connect system as well. So, look, it, it is better in that sense, um, but we're talking about stuff like halogen headlights, which is still pretty old school technology. Uh, you don't really move on to things like uh, LED headlights until you get to the XLT, which I think is a bit of a, a, bit of a piss take. So, um, yeah, look, I, I'll be keen to see what they do with pricing. I, I know it's going to be more expensive, but I, I just don't think they can justify jacking the price up massively at the bottom end just for an infotainment screen. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, now, moving on to the next story, Scully, a certain German car maker is going to be taking full legal responsibility for its drive pilot autonomous driving system. It is. So, Mercedes-Benz is one of a number of car makers working on progressively more autonomous driving systems. The stuff that you get in cars at the moment where they'll stay between the white lines, maintain a gap to the car in front and come all the way down to a stop in traffic are essentially level two autonomous driving systems. And they need to have the driver with their eyes on the road and their hands on the wheel at all times. So they're not really that autonomous. And we've seen this problem play out with Tesla Autopilot around the world. Um, Mercedes-Benz's next system, which is called Drive Pilot, is level three. And that means that in certain conditions, drivers can have their hands off the wheel and their eyes off the road. But 
even if the technology works, getting it approved is really difficult because governments aren't sure who should be responsible for what, how they can actually prove the system is sort of up to scratch. And the bigger challenge at this point for systems like the Merck one isn't so much making it work on the road, it's actually making it legal on the road. One of the things that Mercedes has done to make that happen in the USA is that it's accepting legal responsibility for its cars when DrivePilot is active. So in Germany, DrivePilot works below 60 kilometers an hour on mapped German highways. In the USA, in California and Nevada, it wants the system to work below 64 k's an hour on mapped highways before the end of 2022. And instead of being the driver's fault for not keeping their eyes on the road, if this system's active and being used within its correct parameters, if the Merck runs into the back of something else, Mercedes-Benz is actually legally liable for the accident and it's a totally different type of insurance and legal problem after that. It's a really significant show of confidence from Mercedes because obviously, Mm. I mean, it's not going to let something rip when it's not ready to go, but it is a big kind of sign of trust in its own system that it's willing to risk whatever liability may come from an accident when the system's moving. It's also there to make life easier for regulators who can say, okay, well, Mercedes is confident enough to actually take responsibility. It's not going to come back to our equivalent of the TAC if there is an accident let's give this system a try. Despite all of that and despite everything we've seen of autonomous driving, the idea of people sitting in traffic on their phone legally below 60 k's an hour and the car doing the driving, I still find it really hard to wrap my head around. Paul, do you think it's a good idea that Mercedes-Benz has has put their hand up for this? Um, Look, I think it's a good idea in the sense that um, they kind of have to do it for for level three autonomy. But I just don't know how you're going to prove that. And, you know, recently there was an incident in Melbourne where someone claimed to to be using autopilot and not commenting on that specifically, but how do you prove that the person was using autopilot? I know that we can look at logs and all that sort of stuff, but sometimes logs disappear, you know, people keep driving, they don't stop, you know, there's, I, I just think it's, it's, yeah, well, what are they chasing here by taking responsibility? I mean, what advantage does Mercedes-Benz have? They really are taking a lot of liability on some software that could have one small error in it that ends up killing someone. Um, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I just don't think we're there yet based on what I've seen and people have published, especially with Tesla's full self-driving beta it just seems to not really work that well. And and Mercedes-Benz thinks they have a solution. And I just don't know that we're there yet. I think one of the things with this system is that it is quite limited in where and when it can work. So it's speed capped and it's only available on certain highways, which is also the case with uh, Honda's system in Japan. It only works on some scenarios where the car knows that it's actually going to be able to navigate. But even then, I mean, I've, I've driven the same roads my entire life or versions of them. And there is something new or a different challenge every single day. So just knowing where you're going and knowing what might come up doesn't actually prepare you for what actually will. It's going to be really interesting to see how the car and Mercedes-Benz deals with that. Okay, on to some big news here, Paul. Tesla Berlin Gigafactory has officially cut the ribbon. It's open. Yes. um, The most disturbing thing from this announcement and our news story was Elon Musk dancing. I thought I was a bad dancer and this is just something else. Um, So, in our news story, you'll see a tweet that we embedded there from somebody that filmed him uh, dancing at the opening of Giga Berlin. Um, It's basically the, the German Tesla factory and what this is designed to do is take the pressure off Shanghai, which currently produces a lot of um, uh, Tesla's products for Europe and also Australia. And it's probably the thing that's holding up Model Y coming to Australia as well. So at this opening event, they um, sort of rolled the first 30 Model Y SUVs down the line. Uh, it was a $5 billion production plant that they, uh, sorry, 5 billion euro production plant that they spent their money on. Um, so it is it is interesting to see how they've um, how they've gone about this, and the reason uh, Tesla's share price skyrocketed after they opened this was because while everyone else is talking about supply issues and all these problems, Tesla's going well. We've just opened another factory. We're going to start pumping out more of these cars to free up China, which will allow us to pump out even more cars for other regions. So I think that. Um, Tesla is on a real winner at the moment. Uh, Whether that lasts once other manufacturers catch up on supply, I don't know, but uh, they are certainly kicking goals at the moment and um, opening a factory in this day and age to produce more vehicles is kind of unheard of given the the supply constraints with all the components. 
Paul, has Tesla bitten off more than it can chew here? It's got factories coming in China. It's got Germany opening. It's doing the Model Y, the Model 3. It's also getting ready to ship an updated Model S and X around the world. There's the Roadster, there's the Semi, and there's all the other stuff that's going on in the background that isn't Tesla but is Elon Musk. How do they actually make all this happen and not be completely overwhelmed by it? Oh, look, I think the Roadster, the Semi, the Cybertruck are all just pipe dreams. I don't think we'll see those cars for quite some time. The Cybertruck might be first. The other two, I mean, they've just been talking about them forever and nothing has really eventuated. Um, in terms of biting off more than they can chew, I, I think that given Model 3 and Model Y are where the volume of their sales are, they're just trying to produce as many of those as they can. They reckon they can pump out half a million of these out of the Berlin factory, um, which is which is pretty impressive. And, and looking at how many Model 3s they sell in Australia and how many Model Ys are sold globally, I, I think that they just need to produce as many as they possibly can. I think when Model Y goes on sale in Australia, the sales are just going to be through the roof. And um, I just sold my Model 3 and I ended up selling it sight unseen to a dealer in Western Australia for more than a brand new one. And my car's wow. two and a half years old and has 18,000 Ks on the clock. So, there is huge demand at the moment for electric cars as uh, petrol prices increase. So, I think that Tesla's in a good position, but um, with the other products, I think that they'll just be nice to have. I don't think that, that we'll see them anytime soon. And lastly, Scully, the 2023 Maserati Grical has been unveiled. <laughs> what an odd name. I'm very glad. Odd car. Said- <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad you said that first, man, because I can now just talk about the car and not say its name. <laughs> Um, except for the electric version, which is the Grecal Folgore, Folgore, which I believe is Italian for lightning. Um, this is a really big deal for Maserati. We've seen it go through a couple of different rebirths in the last few years. It started with the, I'm going to have to say this as well, Levante, uh, and it also had the Ghibli and the Quattroporte and then its existing lineup of sports cars, the Gran Turismo and the Gran Cabrio. Um, this time around, it's killing one of its sedans. We're not going to see another Ghibli. I believe the Quattroporte is going to be the only sedan. We'll see a new Levante. We'll see some new sports cars to go alongside the MC20. And one of the big volume sellers will be this Grecal, which goes head-to-head with the Porsche Macan. It's going to be offered in three different versions. Uh, the first is the GT, which has a 48-volt mild hybrid system. Pumps out some decent numbers when you consider what you get in an Audi Q5 or a base Macan. It does 221 kilowatts of power and 450 newton meters of torque. Um, The Modena has the same mild hybrid system and has 242 kilowatts and 450 newton meters and some performance stuff like a limited slip rear diff and active shock absorbers. And then there's the Trofeo, which has a version of the engine from the MC20 supercar. And remembering this is like a pretty sensible mid-sized SUV, has 390 kilowatts of power and 620 newton metres of torque. It is going to get the kids to school on time. (laughs) Um, We also know that there is a fully electric version, the Folgore, with up to 800 newton metres of torque, 105 kilowatt hour battery, and a 400 volt electrical system for fast charging. So Maserati hasn't done this by half. It does seem to have a really modern set of engines and powertrains beneath it. Uh, inside, I think it looks absolutely fantastic. It's built alongside the Alpha Stelvio on a version of the same platform, but it's got a 12.3-inch touchscreen and a really nice big digital instrument display. It doesn't look like some current Maserati stuff, which is a little bit parts bin, mm. for want of a better term. It really looks quite bespoke, which is awesome. We've already talked about the styling of one car on this podcast. I'm curious to know what you guys think of the exterior of this one, because and head to carexpert.com for the full set of images. But in the yellow Trofeo version that we published in our story, I think it looks fantastic. There's another version, though, that's in a sort of goldy beige color that does very little for me. Mm, I agree. Yeah, I, I really don't think it looks all that good. Um, or the uh, the other one, the bigger one that they just released. The Levante? No. Who did a oh the Alfa Romeo the, the Tonale yeah the toenail that's it I just <laughs> I think just I don't know I just think when you think Italian it should look amazing and and sexy and all that sort of stuff and I just don't think they do uh, I do like the specs though the V six sounds pretty impressive um, yeah maybe Maserati is actually back 
this time, not like last time, the time before that or the time before that. Before the Jeep time. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Stellantis. One can only hope. Uh, click the news link at carexpert.com.au if you'd like to read more. The 2022 Skoda Kodiak has touched down in Australia and Mike Costello has spent a week behind the wheel getting to know it a little bit more. G'day, Moko. G'day, guys. And first of all, it's not the Skoda Kodiak, it's the Skodiak. It just rolls off the tongue. Of course. Uh, thank you for joining us, Mike. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> not, 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 not my finest dad joke. Thank no, you to Kodiak. <laughs> that was good. Jesus. Um, so, Moko, what's uh, what's changed for MY22? Yeah, so it's a pretty mild update in a lot of ways. Your typical front and rear redesign of uh, what is Skoda's relatively popular and well-regarded seven-seat SUV, some new, crisper, higher processing speed displays on the inside. Um, but the real big news is the fact that it's ditched the 500 newton metre twin-turbo diesel that was sold in the old RS range topper and replaced it with the same 2-litre, 180-kilowatt turbo used in the Golf GTI and the Octavia RS, still paired to a full-time oil drive system and a DSG. But those who uh, love the idea of a big, torquey SUV might be a little disappointed to see that. Um, but otherwise, you know, it, it, it's more of a sort of evolutionary update than a revolutionary one. I thought it was a bit slow with the diesel. And I, I thought at the time, this really needs a petrol. So when they said it's going to have a petrol, I thought, well, that fixes literally the only complaint I had with it. Yeah. And like, it, it is it is good. I think it's just that you know, a seven-seat Skoda Kodiak SUV is a heck of a lot bigger than a Golf GDI. So, mm. 180 kilowatt, 370 newton meters, it's it's good in a hot hatch, but I'd say it's only acceptable in an SUV. And when they're calling it the RS, you kind of expect it to blow you back in your seat. It doesn't quite do that, but it's certainly no slug either. Why did Skoda decide to change the engines over? Do you know? Yeah, it just they're just basically getting rid of diesels. They're moving towards electric. They're focusing on petrols and, and diesels are just slowly dwindling away um, because mm. they just don't sell as many as they used to. It's kind of as simple as that. So, do we know why they didn't go down the path of putting like the, the engine out of the Tiguan R instead of just going the GTI style one? Yeah, that really surprised me. So, the Tiguan R is going to have that fantastic, even more powerful version of the same engine. Basically, no, they're not really saying why other than, you know, Volkswagen clearly pulled rank and said, mm. you know, we're the big dog in this group. We're going to we're gonna keep Skoda with the slightly less powerful engine. Scully, have you heard anything else along those lines? I was just going to say, I think it's also in keeping with the Octavia RS, which is kind of aligned with the Golf GTI, even though it's sort of got an RS badge, that tends to tie up in the Volkswagen world with GTI rather than full-on R. Um, I know the Kodiak is all-wheel drive, not front-wheel drive, but, yeah, as a general rule, everything Skoda just sits a rung below the top-spec Cupra wow. and Volkswagen stuff because otherwise they'd just have four of the same car and you wouldn't know which to buy. Anyway, I mean, 6.6 6 seconds, 0 to 100 is hardly sluggish. And I did about 800 Ks in it because I spontaneously drove down to Melbourne from Sydney in it and um, did, it, did it in uh, less than a tank, which is pretty remarkable, oh. I would have thought. Um, so I averaged just over 7 litres every 100. So it's not quite as efficient as the old diesel, but it's certainly relatively efficient as far as they go. And when you consider a lot of competitors like the Kluger and the Santa Fe and the, and the Sorento, their petrol versions are all big, thirsty V6s especially with fuel prices being what they are at the moment, the smaller turbo four-cylinder engines in the Kodiak definitely hold some appeal. Marco, what's your, your favourite uh, highlight of the redesign? I would say probably the new virtual cockpit, which now has way better graphics than before. It's much punchier. It's much quicker to load. It's brighter. It's more colourful. And it's a small feature, but they've also put ambient lighting with changeable colours in the footwells as well. Um, but to be honest with you, this this launch that I attended this week was really more about just reminding everybody how good the Kodiak is. I think everybody here has experienced the car to greater or lesser degrees. I've done a big comparison with it before. And Paul, I think from memory, you were there too. Mm. Um, it's a it's a brilliant thing. Like Skoda, what does Skoda stand for as a brand? Good value, good design, and clever, well-packaged interiors. And that's really where a car like this has to shine. So for me, it's a subtle update, but it's a reminder that a lot of people forget the Kodiak when they're out shopping for a seven-seat SUV, but, man, they really shouldn't. You mentioned value there, Moco. At seventy four nine ninety drive away, although the RS is still cheaper than a lot of other 
what you'd call premium seven-seaters. It's not exactly cheap. Do you mm. think it is worthy of that kind of price tag considering what you get? Well, especially considering the Tiguan R is going to cost about the same drive away. I think that's what's 68990 plus on road. So slightly smaller car, but slightly more powerful. And the third row seats in the Kodiak are sort of more of your occasional use variety rather than your full-time variety. So to be honest with you, no, I don't think the value equation is quite there. The entry point for the style is 52990 drive away. It goes up to 57990 for the sport line. Um, but they come with uh, quite a few options that you've got to add. So so to give you an example, there is the $3,000 tech pack with adaptive dampers, better sound system, parking assist, hands-free tailgate, etc. Then there's the luxury pack, which is six and a half grand on the style, 3700 on the sport line. And if you want features like blind spot monitoring, emergency assist, active lane keeping aid, traffic jam assist, all these features, you have to pay to get it in an options package. So, yeah, I don't think the value equation across the board is quite what it was. It's not not exactly a rip-off for a European-made SUV, but there are definitely some price pressures creeping in, and um, it's certainly not better value than a lot of its competitors, if not worse either. Which, which variant do you think is <laughs> the better value one, though? Oh, to be honest with you, you're probably looking at the entry point style is the sweet spot in the range. 52,990 is about bang on with a low-grade Santa Fe active if you're looking at that sort of entry-level mark. I think the RS, I mean, obviously, that's the one that people are going to want and it's the one with the most impressive mechanicals, but I think the value really does lie lower down the range. Mm. Um it's been a, a victim of the semiconductor shortage. Um, <laughs> what are customers missing out on this now? It's such a moving feast. You know, mm. one minute it's a, it's a 360 camera, then it's some safety features. Look, it changes and changes. So we've seen a number of brands have to modify their spec lists and it seems like every shipment that comes in is, is either gaining or losing different features because at the end of the day, Australia's right at the end of the global supply chain and quite often they kind of get what they're given. And we've seen... Um, Jack Quick, uh, one of our news guys, has been following this story quite closely, the constant moving feast that is Skoda's spec lists, and they're not the only brand affected. So there are features being lost, but on the upside, Skoda is offering compensation to buyers whose vehicles show up with less equipment than expected, which you would expect them to do, but at least they're coming to the table with that. Mm. You mentioned uh, the virtual cockpit a little bit earlier on, but uh, what else has been changed in the interior? Very little, just a couple of trims, you know, some different colours and textures and things like that. But I just was reminded about how clever this interior is. The screen, for instance, the touchscreen is only 9.2 inches, which isn't huge by today's standards. But in terms of its processing power, its graphics, its colours, speed, it's absolutely top notch. Wireless phone charging and wireless phone mirroring that works absolutely seamlessly. I never had a single problem with it whatsoever. Even smaller features like the little plastic things that clip out on the doors when you open them to stop you damaging the edge of the door, the umbrellas that are hidden in the doors, the ingenious netting system in the boot, the way that the third row seats fold perfectly flat into the floor, all these little touches that Skoda does so well, the sun blinds that are hidden in the back doors that go up and down. Um, it's just a collection of sort of small, clever touches that really work for me. Um, and the build quality is great. You forget sometimes that ultimately Skoda is Volkswagen, which means great build quality, nice touch points, nice use of materials. It feels rock solid. It's really well packaged. It's only 4.7 metres long, which is nearly a foot shorter than a Kluger. And, you know, the third row, as I said before, isn't huge, but it is usable. And considering, you know, the, 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 the sort of foot shorter nature of its body, it's obviously a lot easier to park in town without losing a hell of a lot in terms of practicality. So those features are the things that really stand out for me. And I guess, you know, as you go up through the rungs, you can get a bit more style to go with the substance. Moko, back in the old days at our old job, I ran a Kodiak Sport line for three months. And what really stood out to me was just how quiet and refined it was. On the highway, you mm. could barely hear a thing. Is the new one the same and does the RS feel a little bit firmer than the standard range when you're driving, say, from Sydney to Melbourne? Funnily enough, it doesn't. It actually feels great. Um, so I was on the phone for a hell of a lot of my drive and it was crystal clear. Um, by the end of my drive, you know, I wasn't thinking about road noise in any way, shape or form. It's on 20-inch wheels and low-profile tyres, so you would think it would be quite stiff and firm, but it's got adaptive dampers. I had it in comfort mode for most of the journey, which really smoothed things out. Even the base car's on 19, so none of them are exactly on chubby tyres, but they all ride pretty well. 
they're firm, but they're not, you know, brittle or uncomfortable. And in terms of NVH, yeah, I've really got no complaints. It's it's obviously not quite as plush as, say, a BMW iX or a Rolls Royce, but, you know, it's certainly not a car that you're driving thinking, oh, my God, the tyre noise is going to drive me nuts here. It, it's nothing like that at all. And as you said, after driving the Hume, um, I would be in a pretty good position to know. And on that front, I've also got to give, uh, give a bit of a shout-out to the travel assist system. Now, it's a disgrace, frankly, that it's optional and it should be standard. We live in a day and age where active safety features should not be an option. But uh, they are standard on the RS and it works pretty much perfectly. It centres the car by itself. It can slow the car down if you don't respond to prompts to put your hand back on the wheel. The active cruise is really quick to react. So for a long drive like that, it actually really impressed me. Um, lastly, Moriko, uh, what's the prices like with uh, servicing? Yeah, so Skoda really makes a point of trying to talk about how cheap or at least competitive its servicing is because the perception, of course, is that European cars are going to cost you an arm and a leg to maintain. Um, so as, as well as a five-year unlimited K warranty, it also comes with various servicing packages. So for $1,800, you can buy five services at 12 monthly or 15,000 K intervals, a couple of hundred bucks more for the RS, or you can buy a seven-year servicing package for $2,700 that covers as I said, seven years of servicing. Um, and then you can also do it in monthly payments and you can get various stages of monthly payments. One that just covers basic scheduled servicing and then one monthly payment that covers essentially everything, almost like a novated lease, except for petrol. So it covers, you know, tyre and wheel balancing and, you know, oil replacements and, and every single thing that typical scheduled services don't package, it packages. So the company is trying really hard, I think, to sort of smooth out the ownership proposition. And obviously it's in it's in its interest to do that because it wants you to continue to go back to the dealer for servicing. But, you know, a lot of people will be going, hey, maybe I'll buy the Toyota or the Kia because, you know what, the Skoda's European, it's going to be incredibly expensive to maintain. Not true. It's actually relatively competitively priced to maintain, and I think that's a real USP for the brand. Mm, how very interesting. All right, that review is live at the site now. Thank you, Mike Costello. Pleasure as always, guys. Well, you go from your standard family SUV to an absolute track weapon in the 2022 Porsche 718 Cayman GT4 RS. Uh, you, you may have heard Scully talk about driving this car once or twice or 10 times on the podcast. So <laughs> finally, now the embargo is lifted. We can properly talk about it. Um, Scully, where would you rate this whole driving experience in your entire motoring journal career? Uh, it's definitely up there. I'm, I'm a big Porsche nut, as I've mentioned on every single podcast I've ever been on. Um, and this is a really unique, interesting car as well. So mm. yeah, I did have a moment and it's the first time I've been overseas in two and a half years, something like that, where I overtook a smart car when the limit lifted coming out of a Portuguese village and hit 9,000 revs in first gear in the Cayman and was overlooking the ocean and just cackled maniacally because I was like, oh, that's right. This is how good everything is again. Um, <laughs> it was pretty cool. Um, how can you sum up a car like that? Is it the perfect Porsche? Uh, that depends on who you ask. I know that there are lots of people out there, and Mandy, you may be one of them, who think the only perfect Porsche can be a 911. But <laughs> I do think that what Porsche has done here is take the best of the Cayman, which is its compact size and mid-engine balance and more affordable price tag, although we'll get to the fact this isn't cheap, and kind of blend it with some of the best of the 911, which is that incredible engine from the GT3. Although the engine in this car is a four-litre engine like the engine in the Cayman GT4, it's a totally different thing. It's the 911 GT3's engine. Um, if you're drinking every time I use an abbreviation or a GT in this, you're going to get absolutely plastered. <laughs> um, and it's been rotated sideways and then fitted in the Cayman. So rather than revving to eight, it revs to 9,000 revs. Um, and rather than having a normal that must be loud. <laughs> it is very loud and we'll get to that as well. That's a little inside joke that Paul's making there. Um, rather than breathing through the intakes on the side of the doors, they've taken out the rear quarter windows and actually put these incredible air intakes right next to your head and then the air box behind your head, which means that even when you're driving around town at really low speeds and you just crack open the accelerator a little bit, you get this like vacuum sound effect. And the harder you push on the accelerator, the harder the noise gets until it finally gets taken over by the intake and the exhaust all combined into what's just an incredible motorsport sort of noise. So, yeah, it, it does make some pretty interesting noises and it's it's a pretty special thing when you get it up around 9,000 revs. 
Um, so you had a chance to drive it on and off the track? Yeah, so we yeah. were based out of Estoril Circuit um, and the first bit of the drive was on the road, which having not driven a left-hand drive car for two and a half years was a little bit daunting because the roads around there are very, very narrow and they're full of like the sort of beaten up Renault Twingos and smart cars that you only really see in car chases through Paris in movies. <laughs> they're not really something we get a lot of in Australia. And I was sort of driving this car with a very expensive carbon aero pack on it on the wrong side of the car on really narrow roads, just breathing in the whole time to start with trying to get my bearings again. But the road drive kind of revealed that, yeah, it, it is it will do road stuff and it's got a nose lifter, which the GT4 doesn't for some reason. It's not a, a complete refugee when you're away from the racetrack and it will go on the road. It doesn't want to shake your teeth loose over every single bump, but it really is a purposeful, very racy car all the time. I mean, you've got the combination of that noise and the fact that it wants to follow cams in the road. So the road drive, for one, revealed how fast it is when you've got things whipping past and consequences, basically. It was quite a sort of restrained drive, but it also revealed that, yeah, this is a very serious bit of kit. So can you use it as a daily? Does it have things like parking sensors and all the sort of normal things you expect in a car that costs this much? So it doesn't have parking sensors. Uh, it does have a boot up front um, and it does have a roll cage, which if you're the sort of person who needs a suit in the car, strikes me as the perfect place to hang it on your way to the office. So <laughs> I think if you were determined, you could even use that rear wing as like a, a drying rack for your clothes on the way. <laughs> um, I think if you were determined, you could daily it. And Porsche has sort of throughout its presentations and the stuff that we did when we were over there mentioned that it does want this car to be road drivable, something you can have fun, you know, on a mountain road. It's geared shorter than all the other GT cars they do so that you get a bit more punch out of hairpins and you can enjoy more of the performance without absolutely blowing past the speed limit in second gear. But realistically, it's the sort of car that's probably your third, fourth or fifth car and one for either the weekend or the racetrack. Mm. I know, you know, price probably really doesn't matter with a car like this, but we haven't actually said how much it costs. (laughs) So <laughs> this price, which is all kind of moot because you still need to be able to get your hands on one, and that's always difficult with Porsche Motorsports cars, but list price is just over $300,000 before on-road costs. Um, it is an expensive car. It's up from $211,600 for the 718 GT4. But wow. It's, yeah, it's a big jump, but it is also seventy grand cheaper than a 911 GT3, and it has the same engine and similar performance figures. Where it gets really expensive is when you start adding all the stuff to it that you would probably want to add to it. Um, the Visac pack brings you carbon fiber bonnet, air intakes, rear wing, um, special embroidery on the headrest, a six-point harness for the driver. That's an extra $29,890 when you throw in the titanium roll cage. You can spend another fifteen grand on carbon ceramic brakes and then... If after all of that you think maybe you want to spend a little bit more money, you can pay $28,110 for magnesium wheels. You pay five grand for the nose lifter, 520 bucks for the chrono pack, six grand for special colors. I did the maths, and the one that I would really want if I was buying one is $357,000 before on road costs. So it is a car that you're going to need to dig deep into the piggy bank to get. That's crazy. <laughs> Wow. Um, right. Let's talk about how it went on track. How did it handle? How did it sound? How did it go? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do that thing that uh, that one other particular member of the car expert team does <laughs> when they talk about Porsche track drives and pretend that I'm uh, a race driver. I'm not. Um, but I think what impressed me most about this car is the fact that it is clearly incredibly fast and incredibly focused and, and a real track car, but it also was very approachable and doesn't feel like it wants to spit you off at the first opportunity. Um, around Estoril, which is quite a long track, there's a couple of long straights. One of them you're doing about 260 k's an hour when you're on the brakes, and it's just rock solid and stable. There's another where there's a kink that's really fast. It's flat out. You take a lot of curb in it, and the race driver who was showing us around essentially did two slow laps and then said, okay, we will go fast now, and just drove off in the GT3 he was driving. <laughs> And the confidence with which you can attack the curbs in the car and even things like initially I was quite conservative with the brakes and wanted to get it stopped in a straight line and then bleed out of the brake and rotate the car. 
And this driver, because he is a race driver, was looking in the mirror going, no, you can go faster. Um, and essentially said to bully the car when you're right on the brakes and turn it as you're coming off the brake. And in a mid-engine car that's quite fast on very sticky track rubber, it kind of, the thought of that really worried me. But the car just is so balanced and rotates so nicely. You can sort of, you can feel it get faster and faster and more and more serious as your confidence and your skill grows with it, which is a really, really cool trait for something like that to have. I think the other thing that's probably worth mentioning is just how beautifully balanced it feels. It's something that people talk about a lot with the Cayman and I experienced it in the GT4, but on the track and with the extra power the RS has, you can really play around with how the car's sitting. And one corner in particular at Estoril is very, very long. And you can actually change how the car is behaved just by moving your right foot a little bit. You lift off a bit and you feel it settle on the outside back wheel and you put your foot down and it settles back into understeer and you can play around with the car really precisely just based on what you're doing with the accelerator, which partly is down to how beautifully responsive the engine is, but also is just down to how well the car is set up. It it really does feel like you can do with it whatever you want and it's constantly talking to you about it and making you feel like a bit of a hero. Um, the other thing that's been mentioned to me previously about Porsche GT cars and that you can actually experience on the track in a way you can't on the road is just how clever all the systems are. So there's a lot of people I know who say that you'd get on track and you turn everything off, but obviously in on an unfamiliar track on the other side of the world in a powerful, expensive car that a whole lot of other people need to drive, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. And the systems are there to ultimately help you go faster until you're really confident enough to take advantage. In a lot of cars, when you put your foot down with traction control turned on, they just kill the fun completely. They, they cut in and sort of upset the balance of the car and slow you right down. In the last couple of laps I was out there, there were a couple of corners where I probably got a bit too confident with the accelerator and made the back of the car step out a little bit. And rather than completely cutting in, killing the momentum and scaring you essentially with how sharp it was, you can actually feel the traction control, provided you're also straightening the car out with what you're doing, just gently bleed back how much accelerator or how much throttle is going on get the car straightened out and then feed it back in in a way that's so smooth and so well calibrated that it doesn't feel like you're being held back. It actually encourages you to keep the stuff that's there to keep you out of the barriers turned on for as long as possible, which is kind of the point. So yeah, I was, I was blown away one by, you know, just how grippy and precise and like track focused it feels, but also the fact that even if you're not, immediately confident in the car or, and, you know, someone who spends a ton of time on track, it really feels like you can build up to it and, and it sort of moves with you and isn't going to be scary or, or throw you off the track. How did it sound at 9,000 revs? <laughs> it is loud. Uh, I will say that. That's disappointing. Um, the, the first thing I do whenever I, I get in any car that has an exhaust button is turn the exhaust button on. Um, we didn't do live in-car video and we are in Portugal. When the car eventually comes through Melbourne, I have no doubt Paul will bravely put his hand up to do a video for that one. <laughs> um, but I know the other guys who were doing video were struggling to be heard over the car at full speed and wow. it really is loud. Porsche, like all manufacturers, is constrained by European noise regulations and on the outside now, you actually can't have a car be too loud but there's no rules about what you can do in the cabin. So... It's really worked with this, I know the 911 GT3 and also this car, to change the way that you experience the engine inside the car. And it kind of plays out in this really like intense vacuum kind of sucking noise from those air intakes down low. And it sort of changes through to this really hard metallic motorsports kind of noise the higher up you get into the rev range. From eight to 9,000, all the Porsche engineers actually said this. They said, it sounds like you're hurting the car and it really is like a, an incredibly harsh motorsports kind of noise. But they all sort of laughed and said, it can do it, just enjoy it. It's such a unique sound and it's so intense and there's nothing contrived or fake about it in a way that maybe there is with some other very loud cars with lots of cracks and pops. It really feels and sounds authentic. And it's one of the things that I love about all the Porsches that I've driven, but especially this one, is that it really just does feel like a motorsports engine that's been put into a road car. And in some ways it is. I know it's a little bit different to the GT3 Cup engine, but 
at its core, that's what that engine is from. It's a GT3 cup car and it's been made to work on the road. So, yeah, it's it's so intense and so unique. Um, yeah, I, I laughed out loud the first time it happened and every single time I got out of the car, all the Porsche people were making fun of me for smiling too much. <laughs> <laughs> what does it, in theory, compete with? Yeah, good question. Um, there's no really, really good answer for that because it's being mid-engined and quite compact. There's not a ton of rivals for it. On paper, you could put it up against something like a Mercedes AMG GT Black, but that car is obviously significantly more expensive. And with the V8 engine and the fact it's a little bit bigger, not by much, it's a slightly different proposition. For that kind of money, you're also looking at maybe a, a Jaguar F-Type R, which is similar size outside, but does have parking sensors and a bigger boot and isn't quite as loud. Um, I actually think that the people who are looking at this are maybe tossing up between a 911 GT3 and a Cayman GT4. Um, Porsche kind of plays in its own space with this stuff. There aren't many cars that are as overtly motorsports focused as the GT4 RS, especially at this price tag, which is still a lot of money, but is a lot cheaper than a GT3 RS or even a GT3 once you start adding options. So I'm thinking sort of AMG GTR, Jaguar F-Type, maybe 911 GT3, but I think it's also the sort of car where people have got a couple in the garage already and have some cash lying around and go, I'd really like one of those. (laughs) So um, you've always professed your love of the 911. Would you be swayed to the GT4 after this? Uh, Good question. (laughs) Uh, And it's not one I have a good answer for. (laughs) I think it's very easy doing what we do to fall in love with the last car you drove and immediately gravitate to that. And Mm. having had such an incredible experience with this car on track, it's really hard for me to say, I think there's something better out there. I still think I'd have a GT3, probably a Touring with a manual, um, partly because it's a little bit bigger uh, and it is a little bit more accommodating for someone my size, even with the bucket seats in this car, I can get comfortable, but you're never getting away from the fact it is quite a small car. Um, I also, as much as I love the idea of only having a car to drive on the track or on weekends and that sort of thing, I know that a 911 GT3 is also not a perfect daily, but I think with the manual transmission, with the fact it is a little bit bigger and a little bit more grown up, you could drive it in more situations. And Given, I mean, we're playing with Monopoly money anyway, but in my head, this is a car that at some point I'd love to buy in the future. I can't quite get away from the fact that a GT3 is a little bit more of a rational purchase, but realistically, I mean, it's it's kind of moot because you put either of these cars in front of essentially anyone and they're going to come away with a massive grin on their face. You have the GT3 as a daily and the, the GT4 as your track weapon. <laughs> Combine seven GTs and we're flying. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that was a really cool chat. Um, so you can read more about that at uh, carexpert.com.au. Wow, what a show that was. Uh, if you do have any feedback for us, please let us know, podcast at carexpert.com.au. What's coming up in the calendar next week, Paul? A little bit of everything. There's actually some super secret stuff going on with Ford that we'll be able to talk about a uh, little down the track, but I'm sure you can put two and two together there. Um, <laughs> we have... An interesting set of cars coming through as well. We've got an XC90 in the garage, which we haven't driven for a while, and they've just done a, a very small change to that in terms of spec. Um, there is also something interesting coming in April for us. We have a big SUV comparison uh, where we're basically testing all of the major SUVs in the midsize segment off-road. So um, that will be in April. So really looking forward to that as well. Uh, What else have we got through the garage? Um, Ford Everest, we'll have another crack in that before it goes goes away and and comes back all more expensive and with more features. Um, But I think that's about it. There's nothing else too interesting going on. Okay. You say that, Paul. I think you're forgetting the Toyota Yaris Cross GX we have up in Brisbane. Yes, my apologies. That completely (laughs) slipped past me there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where's the team off to over the next week, Scully? So we have coming up uh, a few different events. Uh, We've got Mike Costello talking to Polestar next week. Um, 
Paul doing a secret errand in a secret part of Australia. <laughs> and then Albor's fella is actually off to California to drive the new Range Rover, which is going to be really, really interesting. I know he loves the Range Rover and the new one looks awesome. So that will be very cool to see. Um, also worth calling out while we're talking about what's coming up on the website, some of the stuff that has now already gone live. Paul, you wrote a really interesting story about why you couldn't insure your Tesla that you've now sold. And you spoke to some insurance people and the VACC about it. Do you want to give us a quick rundown of that? Because that is now live on the website. Yeah. So, um, when I first bought our Model 3, I found insurance uh, a little tricky to come by, but I eventually got insurance full comp for something like $1,300 or $1,200. I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't too much. When it came to insuring again next year, I couldn't use the same company because they went out of business. They for whatever reason. So, I had to- It was uh, too good. Yeah, it was too good to be true. <laughs> so, I had to shop around and I was pretty shocked to find that insurance was hard to find, but also expensive. Allianz quoted me $9,000 for a premium and I thought, I don't know if these guys are <laughs> they're on the same planet as I am, but that's way too much. Uh, and just for the record, uh, my wife and I are both over 30, haven't had any insurance claims, have intact driver's licenses and all that sort of stuff. So, um, that wasn't really an issue because I was able to quote other vehicles that were the same price. And anyway, um, it all sort of started becoming more of a problem uh, when we went to renew last year and I was rejected by, it was eight insurance companies. They wouldn't even insure a Tesla at all. So, you would go through the tedious process of putting all your details in, hit, get a quote and it would say, no, nope, we can't provide you insurance. So, um, the reason for that is that uh, just with electric vehicles in general, there are not very many qualified people in Australia that know how to repair them. And as a result of that, insurance companies find it harder and harder to process claims when people have them with electric cars. It's then compounded by Tesla because uh, BMW, for example, they'll have a, a giant warehouse with plenty of spare parts stock. They'll often do a lot of repairs themselves as well to cars, which means that they, they can just sort problems out that a, that a repairer down the road may not be able to. Tesla doesn't have that. And as a result of that, the, there's only a handful of shops that actually know what to do with the Tesla, that are willing to work with the Tesla. And as a result of that, insurance companies are going, well, don't want to deal with it. It's too much effort. So, uh, there is Tesla insurance available in the States, not available in Australia. And it is buyer beware. If you are buying a Tesla or you have one on order, please try and make sure you can get insurance first. By the time the car arrives, there's no point trying to do it the night before because you'll find that you probably can't get it or you're going to have to pay almost double what you would for a car that's worth the same price for that insurance. This is surprising because we're seeing a lot more Teslas around on the road now. Why am I just hearing about this now? Are there other people who have said the same thing to you? Or- yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I didn't actually think it was a problem until I started looking into it and started sort of digging around and noticed that a lot of other people were having the same problem. So, yeah, it is it is disappointing um, and, and it just, yeah, it just seems to be a compounding issue that will become worse and worse if Tesla releases the Model Y here. It will just be another car that you will struggle to get insurance for. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. All right, that's a wrap. Paul Marrick and Scott Colley, thank you. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.